So welcome to the latest episode of Now and Men, a podcast about men, masculinities and gender equality. I'm Sandy Ruxton and I'm here with my co-host Stephen Burrell. And today we're delighted to be talking to Andrea Simon, who is director of the UK-based charity EVOR, which stands for the End Violence Against Women Coalition. Hi Stephen. Hi Sandy and hi everybody. Uh, yes, yeah, so EVOR is an umbrella group of feminist organisations and experts working to end men's violence against women and girls um, and so it's made up of over 135 specialist women's support services, researchers, activists, survivors, NGOs and so uh, I believe Andrea has worked at EVOR since 2017 and before that she campaigned on issues such as child trafficking and modern slavery and spent more than a decade working for members of parliament as well. So efforts to tackle violence against women and girls have been widely discussed recently in the UK, particularly following the publication of the Casey Review, which described the Metropolitan Police as being riddled with sexism, racism, homophobia. I mean, this independent review was commissioned for, this is for the benefit of our international listeners, commissioned following the murder two years ago by a serving Met officer of a young woman, Sarah Everard, who was just walking home um, in London. So, welcome, Andrea. It feels like uh, in recent months and years, there's been an endless tide of cases of misconduct, abuse and so on coming to light in the Metropolitan Police and other police forces across the UK. And that suggests that sexism and misogyny remains pretty endemic in the very institutions which are meant to be dealing with this problem. So so what are your initial thoughts on, on the Casey review? What, what do you make of the response to it a few days later, the response by the police, by the government it, itself? Is it, is it a matter of just rooting out some bad apples, as uh, I think the Justice Secretary may have said? Or are the problems much deeper, you know, the highly masculinized, patriarchal policing culture? What, what do you think? Um, I don't think it's a problem uh, just of a few bad apples. You, you won't be surprised to hear. Um, it's incredibly important, as you, you said, to emphasize that this is the latest report. It's come after a stream of other reports and endless, it seems, revelations about police-perpetrated um, violence against women. But that is not, you know, the only criticism levelled at the police. Obviously, the accusations of racism, institutional racism, um, homophobia, discrimination, all of these things are things that stretched back over decades. They're not new concerns, and um, the report doesn't contain anything um, that is a, a surprise to so many people working in the violence against women and girls sector like myself. Um, we already knew about the issues with undercover policing, you know, going back to the 80s. The McPherson, McPherson report was 20 years ago. You know, as we've said, this report, we need it to initiate something different. So it has to be the start of a tangible shift, I guess, in in what we see in UK policing. Um, and we welcome the fact that it has named the Met as having a problem with institutional misogyny, uh, racism and, and homophobia, because ultimately that naming of the problem is is really important step. And the response from the Met Commissioner, which sort of stopped short of saying that he felt that there was an institutional problem, I think is, um, is not ideal because it, it feels like there's still some shying away of describing this as something that is very systemic, 
It's not just about a few corrupt individuals. It is about the institution and the culture of that institution that is enabling um, perpetrators like Wayne Cousins, like David Carrick, to exist in a way um, that is not picked up, even though there are numerous red flags or warning signs or very clear reports of abuse. Um, the fact that many of these things were brushed under the carpet, that misconduct cases had found no case to answer, that there wasn't investigations in the case of Cousins into his indecent exposure offending, tells us that the problems are institutional and that there's a widespread issue with how um, the, the culture of the Met is um, allowing people to, to remain as serving police officers when they really have no business being in the police at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was having a look at the report myself, and uh, you know, the issues around sort of lack of trust of the public, lack of confidence in policing, the decline of policing by consent—all of this stuff was so sort of prominent. You know, lack of leadership. It criticizes pretty much every facet of of the Met's policing, doesn't it? But one of the one of the things I wondered about was um, the issue of resourcing, because I think it says it in the report that you know there are cert there were certain uh, units within the police who could pretty much get what they wanted in terms of resources. So, you know, the firearms um, people, the men working in firearms, you know, they could get specialist night goggles if they wanted them and so on and so forth. Whereas the resources devoted to um, tackling violence against women and girls was much, much less. That's right, isn't it? It was. That's absolutely right. Um, and it's uh, it's indicative, isn't it, of the prioritisation of, of violence against women um, as opposed to to other forms of crime. And um, we've now we're now in a place where we have violence against women as a, a national strategic and policing requirement, which means that all forces across the country are supposed to have violence against women on the same footing as as they do child sexual abuse and terrorism. Um, but even within that promise that we are going to have more attention and more resourcing going towards tackling um, crimes against women, uh, we we see that that there's prioritisation even within that. Borg um, is very much uh, at the bottom of the pile. We haven't really seen any evidence of that strategic policing requirement making a difference on the ground. And certainly what was shocking about the Casey report was to hear that um, you have this complete disregard for um, rape survivors' evidence with um, fridges holding uh, evidence taped together or um, allowing um, evidence to be spoiled um, because it wasn't, it wasn't considered important enough to ensure that the, um, we had functioning equipment. Uh, I, I think that's just a real indictment mm -hmm. on how little um, policing has prioritised, has cared about, uh, crimes that, like rape, sexual violence, domestic abuse. And um, it, it just goes to show that as long as we continue to severely sort of underfund and under-resource um, violence against women and girls as a, as a crime type, but also it, more broadly as an issue that needs to be prevented and we need to, to talk about all the different ways that we should be looking to prevent crimes against women rather than just responding to them after the harm has happened um we just see that we're at we're at the beginning of trying to understand the extent of the problems and the extent of the failures um rather than sort of any way forward in in terms of making progress um on uh, 
on addressing violence against women. Mm-hmm. I mean, given the extent of the the criticisms that you you've made there, and we mentioned earlier, you know, I'm wondering whether it's it's actually even possible to reform the police. And of course, you know, Casey herself suggests that if if sufficient uh, progress isn't made by some of the sort of review points that are built in then maybe we should be dividing the Met up into national, specialist, London responsibilities. Uh, I mean, I'm wondering whether you think that is uh, something that should happen in the, or, or, or do we just go with the process as it is at the moment and see? I, I don't think that anything should be off the table, to be honest. Um, it, it is a case that the police have to try and earn back the trust and confidence of the public in London Um, The Met has significant problems that have been brought to light and it isn't going to be an easy road to doing that. So um, I know a number of initiatives have started and um, as an organisation, we've been involved in uh, looking at accountability of the criminal justice system for for a very long time. And we continue to be part of a number of different scrutiny groups um, Mm. that are trying to look at the, the solutions that they're put in place and and you know critically evaluate whether we think they are going to work um so i think it's important for there to be some time we fully understand that the met and police forces across the country will not transform overnight It's, it's going to be a process and i think things will get worse before they get better because actually the what they're doing now so going back and looking at previous misconduct cases over you know 10 years um and trying to see whether they they have people on the force that don't belong there um, is going to uncover many more um, individuals who uh, haven't received the the treatment they should have done. Um, so we're going to get to hear more and more about police perpetrated abuse and and more uh, cases which go through the criminal system or cases that lead to officers being dismissed. And this will this will not help um, clearly public confidence and trust in policing but it is a necessary um, thing that has to happen and um, part of this is looking at whether the institution has a willingness to really make those kinds of transformative changes whether the institutions can also be transparent about what they're doing and if they can actually listen you know to um, the public to to women saying this is what they want, this is what they need in order for there to be any trust or confidence in in policing. Sure, and presumably also that you know, as I think you've said, there is a balance to be struck for evil between, on the one hand, suggesting you know and supporting radical change, but at the same time dealing with what's going on in the here and now as well. So, you know, that must be a, a tricky balance for you. There are definitely um, challenges to trying to reform um, policing to make it work for women and girls when the we know that the system is is fundamentally broken it doesn't deliver justice to the vast majority of women who report rape for example the the rates of prosecution are so low we can't confidently say it's a deterrent to um, Mm. perpetrators uh, because most cases that are reported are not charged so you do have to to question why so much time and effort is put towards and resource goes into um, the criminal justice system when um, you know vast majority of women won't report in the first place and we want to make sure that 
women who do come forward and want to report to the police are met with um, a decent service. They're treated with dignity. Um, they have the opportunity to access justice um, in that way. It should not be denied to anyone who wants to try and, and get justice through the criminal justice system. And it's it's not always the case that, um, that women find that they are met with... Um, officers who are skilled, who are trained, who have any kind of specialism in sexual violence or domestic abuse. So we think all those things need to change. The institution does need to reform. It does need to ensure that survivors' voices are heard. Um, and that's important to us, but it isn't the whole story. And, you know, there's a lot of other things that need to happen and a lot of societal change um, and survivors have to be able to to get the, the um, support, uh, particularly the, the support with mental health, um, counselling and therapy, which they need in order to cope and recover um, as well. Mm. Yeah, and just, um, just to add, uh, for our, the benefit of our international listeners, you mentioned before about David Carrick, and I suppose it just is one example of how deep this problem is, that he was a serving Metropolitan Police officer and he was jailed for life recently after admitting to 85 serious sexual offences against women over 17 years. So the fact that he was able to get away with that and use his status as a police officer, I suppose, just demonstrates uh, how, yeah, the scale of the problem. Um, but as you as you said as well, I guess, like, um, I suppose all of this focus on the police, perhaps, as you said, does put the emphasis very much on, on dealing with this after it's happened. Um, but as you've said as well, perhaps we also need to be discussing a lot more what we could be doing to stop this from happening in the first place. And um, yeah, I suppose I know that that's something which which evil you know, emphasises a lot is the need for more more to be done in terms of prevention. So yeah, could you perhaps say a little bit about, you know, why that is so important um, for you and, and what kinds of things you think, you know, we could be doing more of in the UK, you know, in order to prevent violence against women and girls from happening in the first place? Mm, and that that's really, really important for us um, to, to focus on. We continue to see a focus on criminal justice system solutions. Um, but as I've said, you know, the vast majority of women are not reporting uh, to the police at all. And so we have to look at uh, how we reduce and how we prevent um, these crimes in the first place. And one of the ways that we think it is vital to do that is to focus on the type of education that young people are getting in schools and that that is, is really equipping them um, with the tools they need both to um, assert their own boundaries and safety and voice, but also to be respectful and to understand what healthy, equal relationships are um, all about. And so uh, that does mean that we're, we're giving uh, young people really good quality relationships and, and sex education, and that we're sort of supporting that by um, talking to the wider public through public education campaigns um, about how attitudes that tolerate and minimise violence against women and girls um, by men um, are uh, generally sort of harmful for the whole of society, but um, are also uh, harmful for, for women and girls. Um, and that, I think, is very key to us trying to prevent um, more victims becoming victims in the first place. We're starting to see some good work on, on the front of um, public campaigning. We've seen um, initiatives from the Home Office who have this Enough campaign which is aimed at, at challenging men's attitudes and, and educating the public about 
um, how everyone can be bystanders, could safely intervene in, in situations where they see harassment and abuse. Um, and we are, you know, we have mandatory relationships in sex education in, in schools, but what we're not seeing is that there is the investment behind that um, to make sure that that's of a good quality, that it's consistent, that it's across all schools. And, and we're not seeing enough specialist input as well from experts, um, particularly women, women's organisations, experts in violence against women and girls being called upon to really inform that, that work. And, you know, we're, we're also, when we talk to young people, and we've recently surveyed them, we're finding that they also feel that not enough is being done. So in a recent survey that we did, 80% of girls thought that schools needed to do much more to support young people's sex and relationship education and to also tackle sexual harassment that is going on in schools. So there's, there's a huge gap um, here in, in that uh, the resourcing, but also the, the quality of what's actually being offered. Mm. Yes, and I suppose like, um, well, I mean, we have also seen some pushback recently, haven't we, from like some MPs questioning whether we should be having, you know, uh, sex and relationships education as it is currently, like talking openly about these kinds of things. So I suppose there's always that risk, isn't there, of, of pushback against this um, as well. Um, but yeah, and, and the Everyone's Invited campaign highlighted, didn't it, that actually schools can be spaces which are often not safe uh, for young women and girls in particular um, when it comes to things like sexual violence and, and harassment. And um, and I know that, you know, Eve or you, you yourselves have, have recently initiated a campaign, haven't you, called About Time, which has a really powerful video, which we'll put in the show notes. I can really recommend everybody checks that out. Um, yeah, I mean, could you tell us a bit more about that that campaign and, and what kind of change you'd like to see happen in schools, you know, if, if they're going to be able to be spaces which are contributing to preventing this? Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. The the hashtag About Time campaign, which we launched in um, January, uh, featured a film that we co-created with young people. So um, it's we held several focus groups with um uh, girls and young women who talked about their own experiences and uh, informed the content of this film, which really spotlights um, girls' experiences of sexual harassment um, in school. It, it depicts a series of really common experiences, uh, including unwanted sexual touching and the pressure that young people um, feel to share intimate sexual images. Um, and it focuses on black and minoritized girls uh, because these there are experiences uh, which black and minoritized girls are, are having of racialized sexual harassment that we're not talking about enough. And so it's quite important for us to uh, to spotlight um, minoritized girls' experiences and how they're often treated uh, and, or how their experiences are, are quite commonly dismissed. Um, so we launched that film and alongside that, survey results which also talked about um, girls experiences of schools uh, nearly three quarters of the young women and girls we surveyed said that they experienced sexist behavior in school which made them feel uncomfortable 62 um, percent of young women said that comments about their body or uniform had made them feel uncomfortable in particular and 30% said they didn't feel safe from sexual harassment in schools, which is really quite serious because we want schools to be safe spaces for, for young people. And um, so many girls um, just didn't think school would take reports of sexual harassment seriously and, and didn't feel safe um, at school. It was always also interesting to, to hear what girls had to say about sharing sexual images because this is something that in previous reports by Ofsted have called out as being 
widespread and very normalized amongst young people. And one in four girls uh, said that they had shared a sexual image of themselves. And of those, a quarter had said that they'd felt pressure to do so. Um, almost a third had initially said that they wanted to, but then later they regretted it. Um, so I think it's it's important for us to be understanding that there are certain pressures being placed on young people, on girls, to do things that they don't feel comfortable with, um, that they later regret, and that they don't really feel comfortable talking to teachers, talking to, to adults about either. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that highlights, doesn't it, the need to talk about like gender norms and expectations, right? And how experiences are different, you know, for girls, for example. And, and that, yeah, we need to be able to talk openly about those things as part of like sex and relationships education, I guess. Yeah, one of the, one of the themes we often return to on this podcast is, you know, the contribution that men and boys can make to prevention efforts. I wondered, wondered if you had a perspective on, on that. Um, I think that I'm not the expert on, on men and boys, but absolutely they need to play a crucial role in preventing violence against women it's i think it's a whole society issue it's everyone's business to to be thinking about it to be responding to it but men and boys i think have a very important role in in terms of holding each other accountable for uh their behavior for their friends family colleagues um that can look like just having those conversations when their friends are saying something that, you know, they they know it could be understood as sexist, um, could be making women feel uncomfortable. They could be into it could be that they're intervening when they can see friends um, harassing women. Um, it's about feeling empowered enough to be able to call out um, things that are misogynistic and and not sort of. Um, playing into it normalizing it and and I think that's um that's crucial but beyond that I think it's hard to do unless you really have an appreciation of why men have a particular privilege in terms of existing in our society Uh, I know sometimes there can be an automatic sort of reluctance to really sort of accept that you know your reality is not the same as a woman or a girl's but it's it does start by listening and hearing um, women and girls when they talk about their experiences and acknowledging that um it isn't the same and we can't occupy space on the same terms as, as men and boys often um it's not to say that men and boys don't also experience um their own uh, issues their own problems um and issues quite often with violence and uh, and abuse. But it is about hearing that women and girls often are in spaces where they don't feel safe and they don't feel free and that uh, they can't go where they want or do what they want without um, considering a whole load of different things that are not the same um, for men. And I mean, I, I, I know and I appreciate that there are many men who will hear like the statistics of... Um, that apply to violence against women and be quite horrified and say, look, this isn't, this isn't me. Um, but uh, there's, there's a way in which men can distance themselves from, from this problem um, and feel that, that it isn't necessarily their, them that, that, that are perpetrating it. And so they don't have, mm. they don't need to have a response, but women can never really distance ourselves from 
um, the fear of, of men's violence, it, it does actually influence many of our decisions on a daily basis. And so I think it's, it's trying to get that through to, mm. to, to most men. So they don't get their sort of backs up and they're not defensive um, and don't want to say, look, this isn't me. It's yeah. it's all of our issues. Yeah. And one of the things you, you highlighted there was the importance of uh, men and boys educating themselves, really, as well as educating and, and challenging each other, I think. And, and, you know, I'm sure that's a that is an important aspect of this. But I also wondered if there are any any particular sort of tensions or problems when men and boys do get involved in this sort of area of work around prevention. You know, I mean, I guess it's possible that, you know, men can try and take over or they can undermine, you know, women's efforts, women's struggles. Um, I wondered if you had reflections on that. I think it's really important for, for men to be speaking to other men and for men to be speaking to boys. And so where there are men um, and organisations actually forming to get, to do that work, to go into schools and to um, have those sessions um, where they are talking about misogyny and they are challenging um, some of the prevailing sort of sexism that you do see amongst a lot of young boys um, these, these days. I think that's really important because uh, they are they're potentially role modeling a different version of masculinity which which young boys really have to see they have to be exposed to um so in that res- regard I, I definitely think there is a there's a role and there's a place for for men um in this some of that will look like supporting and amplifying women's voices but some of it will be really specifically at the front line of this um challenging misogyny talking about it giving different examples of of masculinity for um, for a new gen- for a younger generation, so there doesn't have to be tensions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, in, on the podcast, we do always like to um, explore, I suppose, the personal side of doing this work. Uh, yeah, so I believe I'm, I'm right in saying, correct me if I'm wrong, but that you've been involved, um, you've been working at the End Violence Against Women Coalition since 2017, and I suppose I was just interested in. You know, like what change? I mean, obviously, a lot has happened during that time. So, like, what? And and you know, what changes have you observed? You know, over the course of of, of working at Evor, and I suppose working more broadly in the in the sector, you know, to tackle violence against women and girls. Like, yeah, have you noticed any any particular shifts um, over that time in terms of the different issues you've been focusing upon, um, or or the opposite? You know, have you noticed that there hasn't been anywhere near enough shifts uh, as you'd like to see, perhaps? <laughs> There's been a lot of continuity, if I'm honest. We, we have the same. Our goal is not um, something we believe we can achieve overnight. Uh, ending violence against women and girls is, um, is a huge undertaking. and We, we kind of celebrate uh, the incremental shifts that we see um, along the way. And in the last five years, I've definitely seen lots of those. Um, but, you know, we're a long way off the, the, um, the goal. I think one of the significant things has been the national conversation about violence against women, which we've seen that really in the last couple of years, ever since, you know, the catalyst that was the the murder of of Sarah Everard by a serving metropolitan police officer. Um, Violence against women felt like it was less of a mainstream conversation, I, I guess, before then. And it really got... I think lots of sort of people talking about women's experiences of having to do safety work and how we just exist in this, in the world differently, um, which felt new because 
we have been talking about how this is all rooted in women's inequality, obviously for a very long time and trying to get that message through. Um, but it's it felt like it started to be seen and heard in a different way in the last few years. Um, many of the challenges with the criminal justice system uh, remain just as significant as they did when I started working in this sector. Um, we are uncovering more problems um, as we go along and we're seeing the depth of the issues um, in, in a new way. So I think there have been I think there have been changes. I think it's important that the spotlight is on the, these issues. Um, and I think it's really important that we start to understand what underpins them rather than just looking at a surface level, how we might be able to uh, how we might be able to, to address this by giving longer sentences or putting more money in street lighting and CCTV. We start to look at actually what are the, root, the ways we're going to address the root causes um, or how are we going to, to end and prevent violence against women. Mm. Um, and I suppose the other thing that I've seen in the last five years is the growth of, of women being able to use um, online spaces and platforms to really get across their experiences and their voice. We saw that with, mm. with Me Too. Um, we've seen that with everyone in everyone's invited, which gave a platform to uh, girls and, and young women to talk about abuse at school. And these are, this is a, this is an opportunity, I think, for us to to hear um, to hear more of those stories uh, and not to dismiss them because there's been a groundswell, I think, of um, of women coming forward to say this is this has happened to me at school. It's happened at work, in public spaces, online. Uh, in, in in private life, like violence against women and girls impacts all facets of, of women and girls' lives um, and throughout their lives as well, starting from when they were a girl at school um, all the way through university, uh, work, um, at every stage of life. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see that uh, more clearly, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, connected to that, I mean, doing this work, you know, confronting, the, I suppose, the, the ongoing pervasiveness of, of men's violence against women, you know, uh, on a day-to-day basis must be incredibly hard, you know, exhausting work um, for you. So, I mean, what, what, what would you say keeps you motivated to keep doing this work? You know, what keeps you hopeful? Like, is there anything in particular which, which gives you the kind of inspiration to, like, to keep the struggle going, I guess? It, it, is, it is difficult work, and... We come at it and I come at it from a point of not seeing violence against women as, a, as an inevitable part of life. Um, my ideal is uh, to work towards a society where women, girls of all different backgrounds are living without the fear and the threat of, of men's violence. And I think I'm going to weirdly turn the sort of backlash to... Uh, women's rights um, on its head a little bit and say that that also motivates me. Mm. Um, I think that wherever there is progress, Mm. there is some degree of backlash that happens. Mm. And I think we've seen that in response to Me Too and um, in the way that, you know, people have got behind not all men. And, you know, I've even seen recent polling that's suggesting that younger generations um, feel that women's rights movements have gone too far and are now discriminating against men. And I feel to some extent that that backlash is reflecting that changes are afoot mm. 
in society and that we're actually starting to feel the impact of, of women's voices and, and how women's experiences are now being more centred and being the topic of conversation. Mm. Um, and also the objects of policymaking and, and, and lawmaking. And that makes me feel, I think, slightly more hopeful that changes are happening and shifts are happening in society and that we're going to get to a place maybe in my lifetime and hopefully my children's that gender equality is um is the new standard and that we're making we are making huge strides in addressing um all of the inequalities that women currently experience you know whether that's economic or um social or in relation to to different types of of violence and abuse Mm. absolutely I know as well that um, one of the things Evo really emphasises, I suppose, is the need for a kind of intersectional, anti-racist approach to, to tackling violence against women and girls. Um, so could you tell us a bit more about, you know, what does that mean and why is that so important um, in your eyes as part of this? Um, well, I think if you say that you're going to be there for or stand up for women's rights and equality, you need to mean all women and intersectionality needs to be practised um, and it needs to be part of the way that you, you think about the problem um, and what the solutions are. So, for example, the way that we work um, is we think about women's, you know, different characteristics when we plan our work. We know that there isn't one size fits all as an approach to to support or justice and that different women have different help seeking journeys. And that's impacted by race, by disability, um, um, by sexuality, all of the different things that make up our our complex and wonderful lives um, will inform our own experiences of violence and abuse um, and will inform our our ability to access justice um, or to access the support and services that we need. So from our point of view, an intersectional approach is vital. Um, It helps us to understand the really important work that specialist women's organisations that are run by and for black and minoritized um, women and migrant women and other marginalized communities um, uh, are so important to fund, to ensure exist because they are supporting women who are on the, some of the harshest ends of um, being impacted by misogyny, sexism, violence and racism, uh, disabilism, etc. So we have, to, we have to ensure that those who are facing the greatest barriers, I guess, are supported and so that's why I think an intersectional approach and an anti-racist approach to tackling violence against women is um is vital so I I joined others across the violence against women and girls sector to set up something called the anti-racism working group and that was specifically to address racism within the structures the practices and the behaviors of of our own organizations that are supporting victims and survivors of male violence and collectively we produced an anti-racism charter um, for our sector and that was signed up to by many individuals working across the violence against women and girls sector but also organizations and it committed them to addressing racism within their within the organization and also to challenging um, racist systems and structures and it, it was really important because it sort of it helped us to look inward and say we are challenging racism and misogyny and sexism externally, but this is also an issue for our own sector within the charity sector 
um, but specifically for women who are trying to to work to challenge men's violence. Um, and we've helped to train and to educate lots of, of women and lots of organisations around how to implement the commitments of the Anti-Racism Charter and actually do anti-racist work, which is quite distinct from equality, diversity and inclusion uh, work. And I, and I think that's that's been very key for us to, to get across, that, that we are dissecting power and power relationships as they pertain to race in the same way that we dissect power relationships as they pertain to gender inequality and relationships between men and women. I mean, I wanted to ask you um, a more specific thing, which is about the position of migrant women. And I think I think I'm right that Evo has been been working on the issues they face as well. I mean, in, in a way that it seems like a sort of contradiction within government discourse. So on the one hand, you know, we're going to clamp down on violence against women, and you know, there's a lot of tough words about perpetrators, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, you know, there's a whole sort of anti-immigration, anti-migrant rhetoric going on at the same time and the practice is is pretty scary in terms of you know what uh, migrant women in particular are, are facing I, I wondered if you wanted to say a little bit about that and your campaigning around that issue um, well the, we feel that the government has failed um, to protect migrant women in the in the same way that they've sought protections for other victims for example of domestic abuse migrant women were left out of the domestic abuse act in um, a very significant way um, because they were not afforded the same protections as other women. And we've been calling that out for, for a number of years alongside our colleagues um, who are the experts in supporting women, um, such as Latin American Women's Rights Service and South Black Sisters. Um, so not only are migrant women being left out of the same sort of protections when they are victims of abuse, and we, we don't have a government who fully acknowledges the impacts of um a woman's insecure immigration status and the, the relationship that can have um, to abuse because perpetrators will often take advantage of that and use that as a way to coerce and control their their um, partners. Um, we also have the government at the same time weaponising violence against women in order to pursue an agenda which we think is attacking of migrants. Um, you know, in recent years, we've seen this happening uh, by politicians pushing through anti-refugee laws, you know, right up to the current day, um, and not recognising um, the experiences of, of women who've been abused um, and safeguarding um, those women. So, so these laws, we feel, are putting survivors of, of gender-based violence at, at risk of further harm and, and violence, um, and that they're undermining fundamentally the government's broader commitments to tackle violence against women by singling out um, or excluding one group of people from rights-based protections. Um, when the government starts to do that and we start to accept it, essentially we're eroding that the universal nature of human rights, which is incredibly worrying to us. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to go back to um, something you were saying a little bit earlier about backlash because in the sort of men and boys world um, there's been a lot of focus on the activities obviously of Andrew Tate the kind of extreme misogyny that he and others have been propagating and, and allowed to spread on on social media I mean obviously people like him have a significant reach um, 
and in a way they're just the the latest in a long history of a small but sort of vocal me, uh, minority of men condemning gender equality and you know seeing themselves as the new victims as you said a, a minute ago but do, do you think there's something particularly new and, and worrying about um the phenomenon of, of people like Andrew Tate yeah I I, I definitely do and I, I know that you know, many of us until sort of like last year, last summer, probably hadn't ever heard of this um, individual. Um, and he has a, you know, he amassed a huge following really rapidly online. Um, and I think many parents, for example, were really caught unaware that um, he was becoming quite so influential of their, of their children. And um, I, I say myself, I was very late to to understanding quite how um, prolific uh, his content had become online and hadn't realised that my own teenage son had been absorbing this and um, when we had a conversation about it uh, you know he was very ready with the defence of, of Andrew Tate and his content and, and you know was telling me that you know he felt that he was misunderstood in many ways now so that that all came as, as a bit of a surprise. I think it was quite rapid this rise of this mm. the, the, this influence of this individual. Um, but yes, I think that we've been left sort of having to clear clean up the mess that the internet companies have um, have created in a way by allowing this content to proliferate so quickly and so you know without any restriction whatsoever. Um, and we've seen the impact of that in in schools with teachers really feeling very um, unequipped to be able to challenge some of the, the misogynistic content that um, boys uh, were consuming and sort of repeating. So I think we have to be very, very uh, attentive to the kind of content that misogynistic influences are spreading online and joining the dots as well between that and the real life implications of, of that content on the behavior and the beliefs of boys and young men and the impact that that also has around um, encouraging uh, the harassment and abuse and uh, coercive control within relationship settings of, of girls um, and women. I think we, we one thing we haven't talked much about is the, the impact it has had on girls. We talk a lot about how Andrew Tate's content has impacted um, boys and the way that they think about gender and um, girls and women's roles um, but girls are also consuming this and they're also questioning their own behavior and it's also influencing what they think is appropriate behavior for them in relationships and you can call it internalized misogyny or, uh, almost but um, I'm hearing more and more that, that that's an issue for for girls grappling with uh, all of this information yeah. that they're also being fed yeah now, that seems like a very important point, and I'm sure you're right that you know we need a lot more to be done to to tackle online abuse of women and girls and increase regulation through tech platforms that perpetrators use. The whole sort of whole burgeoning of the manosphere, really. But uh, as I understand it, you know, women and girls aren't aren't, aren't mentioned in the uh, online safety bill. Is is that the case? And and you know, what what more can and should be done about it? Where where are we at with the online safety bill? So the Online Safety Bill is um, currently in the House of Lords and um, we have been campaigning um, with, with partners it, to try and get the, the bill to introduce a violence against women and girls code of practice for internet and social media companies 
Um, we think this is a really important way um, that we can ensure that um, internet companies and social media can take responsibility and accountability for preventing and addressing the abuse that is on their platforms that they often profit from uh, because the, this information and content is shared so widely. Um, we, need, we need them to be looking at things like how to ensure that their platforms are safe by design. And we need them to have better standards when it comes to enforcing their terms and conditions um, and that those terms and conditions are of a decent standard uh, across all platforms. And that's where we feel that the online safety bill really falls short and lets down women and girls who've experienced online abuse. Um, so we're hoping that, that, uh, that there's an amendment that will go into the online safety bill in the House of Lords uh, that will be passed that will ensure that there is a code that is mandated which uh, relates to violence against women and girls. There are currently other codes in the bill and they relate to other issues, but nothing on violence against women and girls. As you say, it isn't mentioned at all in this bill. And one thing which goes through my mind a lot with this is like, you know, how much of the internet is the influence of pornography, right? Which often is, is putting out there quite narrow, sexist, misogynistic ideas about sex and sexuality and stuff and how that influences online spaces. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, obviously we are in a period of quite... Um, significant political flux, as always, in the UK. Uh, so I suppose, you know, we are supposed to be having a, a general election, I think, um, in a year or so's time. And yeah, I mean, do you have any thoughts about, you know, do you see any differences on the horizon in terms of how violence against women and girls, you know, will be tackled by an incoming government in the future? Like, do you think it would make it? I see Keir Starmer's made a speech today about how he wants to see, like, violence against women and girls halved in, a, in 10 years and things like that. I mean, do you think that these kind of political shifts could make a, a difference in, in your view or, um, yeah? I think, yes, it, it's important right now when we're thinking about an upcoming election that violence against women and girls is a part of uh, manifesto commitments. We want to see that this breadth of support there is within the, you know, the public domain for doing something about violence against women that we want to see all these national conversations that we've been having about women's safety translated into ensuring that the government have the political will to finally really do something about this. Um, so it should be a central election issue. Um, if we keep prevention at the heart, we can start to then see that solutions will come out rather than some of the PR announcements that you've seen uh, which are very short term. They are about putting money into to street lighting and CCTV, as I've mentioned before, and they fail to get to the root of the problem um, and therefore will not transform the experiences of women and girls today. So we need to see very sort of radical thinking um, from our politicians and a demonstration they really understand what it will take to end um, violence rather than quick fixes or sound bites or things they think is going to please the public. Um, and we, we do want to see that there, you know, there are some survivors who are not left out of the promises that are being made um, now and will be made um, by uh, whoever's in government next. Um, so those issues for migrant women, um, where we've, we've talked about them being excluded from provisions that support other survivors of abuse have to be addressed. Um, and we don't want to see that 
incredibly harmful rhetoric um, around uh, refugees and other migrants being prioritised over the safety, the dignity and the, the treatment of, um, of survivors of, of violence and abuse. But I think we've, we've also come out of a situation where politics has been very, um, it's been very messy and, and difficult. Mm. Like in the mm. last year, we've had three prime ministers and we've had some significant delays to bits of legislation some of which we've talked about, the online safety mm-hmm. bill, mm-hmm. the victims bill, which has still not appeared, I believe is very soon to appear. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've been waiting for that for a very long time. Um, so it has had a knock on effect, the political mm-hmm. instability on being able to further bits of legislation that would improve the lives of victims and survivors of, of violence and abuse. So we're still grappling with um, the fallout of all of that. Um, and looking to politicians to make good on, on the promises they've been making for a while now, but we haven't really seen that much change, that much difference on the ground. Mm. Yeah. Well, just just last the last question, just quickly, um, I had was just um, Evor is an, a kind of avowedly feminist organisation, um, and perhaps that is something which might be quite hard for organisations to say openly these days. You know, there's a lot of pressure to be professionalized like politically neutral gender neutral uh, also the backlash you've mentioned as well um i mean do these things create obstacles you know for you in in the work you do like how do you navigate those tensions and and why is it that actually saying you know to being openly feminist is really important in in your eyes um i think that probably some of the greatest risks come with a lack of recognition of the role that gender plays in terms of violence and abuse both prevalence and uh, solutions wise we're really clear that this is an issue that disproportionately impacts women and girls and is disproportionately perpetrated by men and boys and so we have to be clear about that we have to name that um and for us it's so fundamentally tied in with women's equality um and seeing that as the cause and consequence of, of violence and abuse and those messages won't change and they have to be centred, I think, in any solutions, because if we if we don't uh, acknowledge that the problem is um, men's violence against women, then we're just talking about violence in general. And, and that's not that's not going to help um, ensure that we're addressing who is committing the violence and, and dealing with that. I mean, when you think about some of the most progressive and transformative actions that have come out of um, the government's rape review, which is trying to look at how we transform the response to to rape um, victims in the criminal justice system. It has been that message through Operation Soteria, which is a police and CPS programme looking at how to improve um, both investigation and prosecution of rape. It has been to identify that we need to focus on the suspects and have good suspect-centric investigations Previously, what we still see actually is an undue focus on women who've reported rape, on their credibility, on their characteristics, their behaviour, and that has to shift. And I think we've just, in general, got to shift from thinking about women and girls as being, and their action as being the solution to male violence, and to, Mm. to think about men and boys, and to look at how we we place the onus on them to address their behaviour, their actions, and to hold other other men and boys accountable. Um, 
it's it's very important for us to be clear about that and to to keep that in in mind when we're talking about this issue all the time well thank you that's a highly relevant message for our podcast uh, <laughs> so thank you so much for, for giving up your time and for all the amazing work you're doing it's uh, very so much appreciated yeah thanks andrea for coming on that's very good to hear you talking about all these different topics and what you're doing no thank you for having me um yeah i've really enjoyed speaking to you oh, it's our pleasure thank you thanks <laughs> Well, Sandy, it feels like we're recording this episode at quite an important time uh, here in the UK, really, given that the Casey report has just come out and it's really shone a light on um, the extent to which sexism and misogyny, racism, homophobia are kind of entrenched within policing and actually in society more broadly as well. Uh, what did you make of the conversation with Andrea? Yeah, sure, Stephen. Uh, um, that, that's right. I mean, I, I've had a read of some of the you know 300 and plus pages of the Casey review and really it's a pretty as as many people have said a pretty stark um read there's some very disturbing evidence there of uh, particularly the 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 things that female officers black officers have to put up with in in the met and you know the report does highlight you know the existence of the sort of boys club culture i think particularly in the sort of specialist areas um and and that you know as it says the more male dominated the command the less women seem to be able to to break through you know and there's material in there suggesting you know a third of women in the met uh responding to a survey carried out for the review have experienced sexism at work 12 percent report directly experiencing sexual harassment as well um, so it's a pretty harrowing read, really, and you know I'm, I'm avoiding sort of giving some of the uh, some of the quotes, which uh, just demonstrate how bad it is. Listeners can can look at that themselves if they want to. We'll put in, put um, a link in the show notes. But um, I think it's worth just sort of dwelling for a moment on some of the recommendations as well, because you know there are some specifically in relation to improving uh, the situation of. Um, women and girls and preventing them being victims of violence and abuse. So in particular, uh, the report highlights the importance of dedicated women's protection services and, and also that there should be teams to deal with rape in particular and serious sexual offences. And it suggests a, a children's strategy for for london as well so you know those those haven't really um, received so much attention but i think it'd be worth thinking about those elements anyway I've, I've said quite a bit there but perhaps you want to add to that Stephen. yeah well i think one thing which comes to my mind which i feel like people aren't really talking about that much certainly outside of the kind of you know amazing organizations like evor is like is how deep-rooted these problems are, really, you know, in, in, in terms of, like, thinking about the culture and, and how much needs to change there and how it is really a root-and-branch issue. You know, that this is such a masculinized, patriarchal, policing culture that we have, right? Um, in, and actually, you know, in some ways, um, you can see how, how that might have got worse over time rather than better. If we, think about, if we think about previous episodes of the podcast and how the influence of militarism on society and how our police forces 
increasingly militarized in many cases and how that projects certain ideas about masculinity. But I suppose at the same time, you know, we, I think it's also important not to think that this is a problem limited to the police as, as problematic as the issues there are, because actually, you know, th th those kind of cultures exist way beyond the police and um, uh, in our society, uh, you know, and so I think that's something which all of our institutions and, and workplaces could reflect on, you know, about how do these problems manifest themselves in, in all of our organisations and what can we do to, to change them? Um, I suppose one thing there as well, which, which comes to my mind, you know, so I suppose sometimes it feels like some of the initiatives which are being proposed to tackle this feel like they're, they're just scratching the surface, really. Um, you know, it's the same goes for schools, for example. Um, you know, obviously, sex and relationships education is, is really important and necessary. But actually, you know, the kinds of culture and norms that, that boys are learning from a young age extends well beyond that, even just within the school campus. And I know that's one reason why Evor, you know, campaigned for a kind of whole school approach to preventing violence against women and girls for that reason. Um, and I suppose I think that we need to reflect on this on a more personal level as well, right, as, as men, to look quite profoundly at ourselves right and um and think about how have we been influenced by this this kind of culture um because i think we can just see all around us still you know that this idea that men should have more power than women that men should have power over women um you know we, we're learning that all around us all the time and that does manifest itself in all sorts of different ways in our relationships in in sex in the workplace at school um all around us and i think that's some that's an ongoing thing which we all need to kind of reflect on and unpick and and challenge uh, in ourselves as much as anything i guess isn't it yeah, you've made me think whilst you were talking there of uh, uh, not wanting to blow our own trumpet, of course, but but I'm just about to. Uh, an article that you and I wrote with Nicole Westmoreland for the conversation, and this is this is you know two years ago about Sarah Everard and how we can all help change masculinized workplace. You know, um, a lot of the uh, things that you you just said about workplaces being male dominated and you know the constructions of masculinity within the workplace you know there's a lot that needs to change more generally not just in the police I mean for example the, mm. the cultures are often still based around a sort of ideal male in brackets male worker and career progress can be linked to full-time continuous employment and women's lives are often not fitting those patterns uh, so much so you know th there's lots that can change mm. did you have any reflections as well on, on being a parent and the role parents can play uh, in in this yeah well it was interesting I mean uh, Andrea did mention the conversation that she had with her son I think her teenage son mm. about uh, Andrew Tate you know and, and she said her son to an extent was defending Tate and I guess those kinds of conversations may be going along in many many families mm -hmm. around the country and probably internationally as well and I, and I also know from my, my own experience how difficult it is to deal with some of these issues you know and how you need to sort of well I felt you, I needed to tread a fine line between not sort of writing off mm -hmm. um, opinions and closing down debates which I mm -hmm. thought weren't weren't worth it if you see what I mean but at the same time uh, maintaining dialogue you know uh, dialogue with with mm. teenagers particularly teenage boys is a difficult thing for parents to maintain but it's actually yeah. absolutely critical to making yeah. progress in these areas mm. I think yeah I'm feeling able to talk openly about these things um, yeah absolutely yeah. 
Okay, well, yeah, we should probably stop there uh, for this uh, episode. But um, thank you so much, as always, to all of our listeners for for tuning in. And um, do contact us at nowmen at gmail.com if you have uh, questions or comments, as always. Uh, Please do subscribe and share the podcast with your friends. And we will be speaking to you again soon, hopefully. Thank you. Yes, and it's goodbye from me as well. So talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.